them by listening to his word. If you would uh, turn with me in Acts, we have gotten up to Acts chapter 4 and verse 5. This is the inerrant, infallible word written for our edification. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father, for your word. It is our desire to live it out. And I pray that uh, as we come, that you would teach our hearts to tremble at your word. Uh, teach, uh, teach our hearts, O oh God, how to implement it. And I pray that you would work in us both to will and to do of your good pleasure. Anoint me, Father, and enable me to faithfully and accurately uh, proclaim the word and help each one of us to receive it by faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Brother Zhao is a uh, church leader that I met in China, and he came to Christ back in 1989 when there was a street preacher who was just preaching out in the open market to the crowds, and he was kind of chuckling and jokingly saying that he missed the, the good old days when nobody took any precautions and almost every Christian was in jail. And uh, he himself had been tortured so many times that he couldn't see very well out of either eye, uh, couldn't stand for very long, had to be kind of helped to the, uh, to the car. But he was so full of the joy of the Lord, you could just see it radiating from him. Um, he still is as bold as ever back in the good old days. Uh, he said he felt guilty when he wasn't in jail with the rest of his congregation. He says he doesn't feel guilty anymore, but uh, he really felt guilty back then. And so he'd stand outside of the, uh, the um, uh, police barracks and insist on being jailed. But he caused so much trouble and led so many people to Christ in jail that a lot of times they just didn't want him there. They just kept him outside. So he stood outside the jail door and he would preach to the police officers going out and the police officers coming in and they didn't know what to do with this guy. He really was a kind of a feisty guy. There was another uh, pastor by the name of Brother Lee and he said that at one point the uh, son of one of the police officers started singing the Christian songs along with all of these Christians in jail, much to the consternation of that police officer. And eventually, the police chief himself became a Christian. And the way that happened is his daughter had, uh, was dying of leukemia. And uh, he had heard that some of these Christians had had healings as they prayed to their God. And so 
he asked Brother Lee, begged him actually, if he would come and pray for his daughter. And the Lord just miraculously healed his daughter right there on the spot. And his whole family came to the Lord for that. And we see the same kind of odd mixes of things happening here in the book of Acts. You see fierce persecution of the Christians. And yet in Acts chapter 6 verse 7, it says a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Remember, most of those priests were Sadducean in their alignments, and so the very Sadducean persecutors of this chapter are later on becoming Christians. Now, we find some Pharisees, and we find some other leaders becoming believers, and so every level of society was being impacted by the gospel. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 4, and uh, today uh, we're going to be, begin at uh, verses 5 through 6. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at uh, Jerusalem. So it appears that this is the convening of the entire Sanhedrin, which was the Supreme Court of Israel. And just in case we don't get the point, Luke um, makes note that he calls them the rulers of the people and elders of Israel. And then in verse 15, he explicitly calls them the Sanhedrin. That's the Greek for council, uh, Sunedrion there. And so this is a remarkable gathering. You just didn't get the Supreme Court to gather on a moment's notice very frequently. And for these people to be taking original jurisdiction on such short notice shows to me they considered this very, very dangerous stuff. This had to be dealt with. And it was dangerous to them for two reasons. First of all, the high numbers of people who were becoming Christians in these weeks after Pentecost. Uh, Take a look at verse 4. The last phrase there, it says, The number of the men came to be about 5,000. Now, the word for men there is an adult male. In fact, frequently it's translated as husbands. And so if there are 5,000 heads of households who have come to the Lord, people have calculated that that means that there was a minimum of 15,000 believers at this point in, in Jerusalem. And uh, this is why every liberal commentator that I own claims that Luke has to be exaggerating here because there is no way that this many people could have come uh, to Christ at this point uh, in Israel. Let me just give you an example. James Dunn, in his commentary, says, Numbers in ancient historians tended to be more impressionistic or propagandistic rather than to provide what we today would regard as an accurate accounting. We may compare the obviously inflated numbers reported by both sides in the Iran-Iraq war of the early 1980s. But even so, we may be confident that there was a large initial movement of successful recruitment, unquote. Now, we obviously believe that Dunn was wrong and that the Bible is right. But if you understand why the liberals are skeptical of those numbers, you will get a good feel for why the leaders in Jerusalem were in a panic about what was happening at uh, this juncture. In fact, I've got a little overhead here that I'm going to put up just to give you some of the estimates that have been uh, given of the number of uh, people that populated Jerusalem in those um, uh, early days in uh, 30 A.D. And these are taken from uh, various uh, books Uh, that are out there. The first estimate is the one that is most frequently recorded by both liberal as well as uh, conservative evangelical um, scholarly 
commentaries. Uh, Joachim Jeremiah has a massive study on it, and he estimated that Jerusalem had somewhere between 25,000 and 30,000 people. Now, I disagree with his figure, and I think there's some good reasons for disagreeing with it. But if he's right, he said within the walls of Jerusalem there were 20,000 people and another five to 10,000 outside of the walls of, of Jerusalem. Now, if that figure is correct, that means that there was an enormous 50% equivalent of 50% of the population of Jerusalem that's become Christian. Uh, anybody's going to take notice of that if that's true, and you can see why people think, man, that just seems way, uh, way I- exaggerated. Now, even if you count that most of these converts are from the pilgrims that came to this festival, and there were, you know, probably over a million pilgrims that came, most of those people have gone back, and there are 15,000 people still hanging around the temple, uh, listening to the apostles and what these uh, leaders considered to be uh, anti-government propaganda that was being given. And so you can see why they're uh, somewhat upset. Now, like I say... Uh, Jeremiah is a liberal, and I'm surprised at the number of evangelicals that take his uh, word as gospel truth. If Paul Hill's uh, figures are correct, 55,000, then 27% of the population of Jerusalem was saved. And if Edersheim is correct, and I'm convinced he's much, much closer to the mark, it was somewhere between 200 and 250,000, then 7.5% of the population. Now, just take that figure that is an enormous social change that has happened. If 7.5% of the population has become Christian within just days or weeks of Pentecost. Now, none of my commentaries even cite uh, Tacitus, who says he's an ancient Roman historian. He said 600,000 people were in Jerusalem. And his numbers are inflated because he was recording the war against Jerusalem that uh, ended in 70 A.D. And uh, what he was seeing was that there were tons of Jews uh, that had come as pilgrimage to one of the festivals, and they were trapped inside of Jerusalem. And so that's probably where his uh, figure was a little bit inflated. Not all of them were able to escape. But let's just assume the highest figure that you'll find anywhere that's still 2.5%. And even today, if there is an immediate change in 2.5% of the population, politicians are going to take notice. Uh, They're going to immediately wonder what is going on here. Uh, And so the first reason that these leaders are very concerned is there is an unprecedented social change that has come at hand. Um, Most of my evangelical commentaries would say it's equivalent to 27% of Jerusalem's population. Uh, I hold that it's about uh, 7.5%, but either way, it's, uh, it is a major, major shift. <clears throat> the second reason that these leaders think that they have to act quickly is that they have just been publicly accused of being murderers of Jesus and that God has honored whom they have dishonored, that he's sitting at the right hand of God. Now, them's fighting words. And I want to describe what uh, this group of people is like a little bit, just to give you a little bit of a feel for why it is that they are so intensely opposed uh, to the Christian faith at this, um, at this juncture and become even more opposed as they go along. The first person mentioned there, Annas, was high priest from 6 A.D. until 15 A.D. Now, the position of high priest in the Bible was for life. 
But uh, Rome deposed him at that time, and they appointed uh, another high priest in his place. But it didn't matter who was on the throne. Annas was the de facto ruler who ruled from behind the scenes, and Rome tended to give out that position to the people who gave the highest bribe uh, to them. And because Annas was one of the wealthiest people in the, in the country, he was able to keep his family in those positions of uh, the high priest for the entire period of his lifetime. He had five of his sons, one grandson, and one son-in-law, that's Caiaphas, uh, who uh, were in the positions of, of high priest. And Annas was behind all of them, and he amassed a fortune through his position. I'll just give you one example, and this was one that was the most repulsive to the common people. Uh, it used to be, prior to Annas, that they had a free market for the pilgrims who would come in for the festivals in exchanging money and also in uh, providing sacrifices that were fit for the temple. You could find one on the Mount of Olives, for example. And there were other places where you could get them. Well, he got the leaders of Jerusalem to say, you know, we've got to really be careful about these sacrifices. And they ruled out all of the other uh, markets, and they had one exclusive market that he happened to own and was conveniently located in the court of the Gentiles. And he was able to charge top dollar whatever he wanted to charge for those sacrifices, and there wasn't much of anything that people could do about that. And these bazaars of Annas, as they were called, were driven out of the temple twice by the Lord Jesus, much to the glee of the crowds and much to the enragement of this family. Caiaphas was high priest when Peter preached, even though Annas retained that title. And people thought, hey, the Bible says it's for life, and so he's for life. But in the New Testament, you'll see that they speak of the high priests, plural. And so there are a number of different high priests who ever happened to in the past have been uh, uh, brought in by Rome. So Caiaphas reigned from 18 to 36 AD, and then John and Alexander, the next names, were the high priests that followed. Now, if you bucked them... You weren't just bucking them, you were bucking Rome, because Rome had placed them in that position, and the people, the common people, absolutely hated this Sadducean nepotism. It wouldn't have taken much to cause an insurrection. In fact, in the Gospels, uh, last week we read some passages where they're scared to death that there's going to be a revolution of the people uh, rising up against them. And so in John 11, John 18, it says that Annas and his son-in-law Caiaphas were instrumental in trying to get the crucifixion of Jesus because they considered him to be a real uh, threat. So you've got the huge growth of the church. You've got an accusation that these Jewish rulers are guilty of murder. You've got Annas's powerful family. They've got a lot at stake, a lot they could lose, a lot that is hated. And then fourthly, it's unnerving to think that they have just gotten rid of Jesus only to find that an invisible Jesus has popped up and people are preaching in his name and are healing in his name. And they're wondering, we need to deal with this quick or we're going to be in deep trouble. It's no wonder they're trying to stamp it out because this is as direct of a confrontation of that whole system as you could possibly get. Now, I should point out again, Peter was not a revolutionary. He was not trying to overthrow the government, uh, but his ideas were revolutionary and it scared these people to death. This is one of the reasons why the Chinese government is persecuting Christians in China. They perceive them as being a threat uh, to uh, their position of nepotism. 
Okay, verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Now, the word this refers to the miracle. If you look at verse 14, you'll see that the lame man is standing right there in the midst. They're probably pointing at him. And you get the impression that these people can't quite bring themselves to use the word healing, uh, to even admit. So they just say this, you know, that's uh, standing over there. And in effect, what they are saying, it's, 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 uh, it's dealing with an authority issue. The, the evidence is damning, but rather than dealing with the evidence, they try to bring up a different question, and it's the question of authority. By what power or by what name have you done this? Now, in modern lingo, it would be something like this. Who gave you the right? Who gave you the authority to be doing healings in our temple? I don't recall my giving any authority. I'd like the name of the person who authorized you to do this. Now, they may have, in fact, been concerned that maybe somebody like Nicodemus, one of these softies out there, maybe had given permission. But this was designed to try to intimidate these apostles into silence. And these apostles know full well these are the very men who have put Jesus to death not many days previous. It could be their neck, uh, and they could uh, die very uh, shortly as well. So they're probably thinking their own days are numbered. And to be surrounded with so many, there's 70 plus all of the relatives. Those relatives shouldn't have been there. Uh, but 70 of the people in the Sanhedrin and in all of this high priestly family, to be surrounded with these angry, powerful, irritated people, I think would have intimidated most Christians into silence and saying, well, I'm sorry, we won't do this again, you know. Uh, but uh, these people are quite surprised. They're shocked to see that they're dealing with a boldness that they had not anticipated. Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, it was the Holy Spirit who gave to Peter this incredible boldness to speak to this uh, crowd here. It was the Holy Spirit who gave him an energy in his words that stopped the mouths of... Um, of the Sanhedrin, of his adversaries. And so I want to spend a little bit of time uh, analyzing what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit, because I think this is an essential ingredient to having a powerful Christianity today as well. Most scholars agree that the Greek of be filled with the Spirit, there is a sharp distinction that they make between being filled with the Spirit, which is an act for a specific time, for a specific need, and being full of the Spirit, which is an ongoing Spirit-likeness. It deals more with character rather than empowerment. So filling with the Spirit deals with empowerment, whereas um, being full of the Spirit deals with uh, character. Uh, in the book of Acts, you'll see people who are already full of the Spirit who are said to be filled with the Spirit again and again. If you take a look at verse 31, it says, When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now, the curious thing about this is that they were all full of the Spirit earlier, and earlier there was another time when they are filled with the Spirit, but here they're filled with the Spirit again, and they're going to be filled with the Spirit later on in the book of, um, uh, in the book of Acts. And I think this, 
this is um, an issue that we need to think through. What does it mean to be filled over and over? Ephesians 5.18 uses the ongoing tense when it says, be filled with the Spirit. And this is not controversial. Everybody agrees with this. Uh, The way you take that is, keep on getting filled with the Spirit. That's the command in Ephesians 5.18. This is really the pattern that was said in the Old Testament already, even though there wasn't an... uh, uh, the, the same extent of the outpouring of the Spirit in the old as there was in the new, the leaders of God uh, were frequently said to be full of the Spirit, and yet when there came a need or an emergency came up, what happened? The Spirit of God, either it says it came upon them, and you can see that many times with Samson. The need came up, the Spirit came upon them, and he worked. And there are other leaders where it says that they were filled with the Spirit at that point, even though they had the Spirit earlier. And so you'll see this this pattern uh, even in the Old Testament. So there's a distinction in the Greek between being full of the Spirit, that deals with character, Spirit-likeness, and being filled with the Spirit, that deals with empowerment. If you keep those two phrases separate, I think a lot in Acts will make sense. Now here's where the disagreements come up. The disagreements come up with what the results of such filling should be. Now, not all, but many charismatics insist that every filling automatically results in prophetic speech. They say you can't even claim to be filled with the Spirit if you've not had miraculous tongues or if you've not had um, uh, some prophetic speech that has come out of your mouth. And oddly enough, there's been a number of non-charismatics that are holding to this view as well, and some very wonderful scholars that hold to this. F.F. Bruce uh, would be one. one. One commentator that I had said, without exception, in the book of Luke, anyway, uh, that... To be filled with the Spirit means to prophesy, and one of them even goes to the extent of saying what you should translate that as is not filled with the Spirit, but he uttered prophecy. I absolutely, totally, 100% disagree. Now, the verse we just read could be taken that way because he is speaking there, but it could be just as easily taken that he is speaking this word boldly. And the Spirit enabled him to speak this word boldly. But it could be taken the way that they take that. But in Acts 9, verse 17, Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he doesn't do any speaking, it says very explicitly, for several days. He stays in his home, and the only thing that immediately happens is that his body is strengthened. Only after he has been strengthened for several days does the next verse say immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God, and he argues with them powerfully from the Scriptures. But even that, there is no mention whatsoever of the prophetic. And so Acts 2.4 is prophetic. Chapter 4, verse 8 may possibly be, though it doesn't have to be. Chapter 13, verse 9, definitely so. Though three of the times that this phrase is used in the book of Acts... It could refer to prophetic speech that comes out, but that's hardly a mandate for saying that Luke always uses that. In fact, elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, you find that there are clear times where you're said to be filled with the Spirit, and it applies to things, ordinary things like worship and submitting to one another. And they will say, yeah, but that's Paul. We're, We're talking about Luke here, and Luke's usage is always this way, and we're going to be seeing that's actually not the case. But I think it's an error, 
and I so frequently see this, sometimes even in reform circles, to speak of Lucan theology versus Pauline theology as if they are saying different things and using terminology different things. The same spirit who inspired Paul inspired Luke and inspired the Old Testament as well. And in the Old Testament, three of the five times that the identical Greek, same Greek phrase is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's used of the, uh, the people who were going to build the temple, and it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit so that they could work in their artisanship. All of the skilled craftsmanship that they did now was above and beyond what ordinarily that they would be able to do because they needed wisdom to do it with the intricacies of the temple. Uh, One of the times it refers to God filling Joshua for the task of leading Israel and giving him wisdom through that filling. That's Deuteronomy 34, verse 9. Only one passage in the Old Testament, and that's in the Greek translation, uh, could relate to prophecy, and that one doesn't even use that phrase in the Hebrew. In the Greek it does. But in Micah 3.8, it says, But truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So I think it's better to stick to what is clear, and that is that Christians always need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, period. And the way they receive that is by the infilling of the Spirit. And I think it's just as clear that the New Testament is not just New Testament prophets that needed this infilling. Everybody does. Ephesians 5.18 gives that command to everybody. And so it does not matter uh, uh, what the task may be. You can call out to God and say, Father... Fill me with your Holy Spirit this day for the task that you have given me to do that in my own strength I know I will not be able to do adequately. Now, it may be that you're a parent and you need wisdom from on high uh, to be able to cut through the tangled web that your kids have got themselves into. And how many times has the filling of the Holy Spirit enabled uh, my wife Kathy and myself to cut through those kinds of issues in counseling or with counseling other people? There's been many a time where that has been the case. Or it may be a situation where we need the strengthening of our bodies like Paul needed it in Acts chapter 9. I've experienced this many times where I've been so weak and I said, Lord, you know I need strength. And the Lord has strengthened me. Uh, George Whitfield and, um, and uh, who's the other dude? Uh, George Whitfield and uh, John Wesley. Uh, frequently, you read in their, in their biographies and you see that this happened to them. Uh, sometimes George Whitfield was so weak, people had to literally lift him up onto the horse. He couldn't get up by himself, and he had a hard time staying up there. But when he went to preach, he said, Lord, fill me with your spirit. And he could feel the energizing of the spirit carrying him through so that he could do his task with a real uh, power. Uh, It may be that you need the infilling to give you the ability to do skilled artisanship. And I know people in this city who pray daily. You know, in fact, uh, one of the people comes to our uh, house on occasion to uh, work on air conditioning units. And there's times where he is mystified and he says, Lord, I I need help. And the Lord gives him help and wisdom. You may need infilling to effectively teach others to do that work. Exodus 35, 30 through 35. That passage indicates in order to effectively teach what they were able to do, 
They needed the infilling of the Spirit. You may need this infilling to give boldness and success to your preaching, as in Acts 2, as in Acts chapter 4, or boldness in your witnessing, Acts 4 verse 31, or in spiritual uh, worship, Ephesians 5, 18 through 21, or the ability to submit to your husbands, Ephesians 5 and the verses that follow. In other words, this covers far more territory than many people are willing to admit. To focus on prophecy is to miss out on 99% of what we need the Holy Spirit's infilling for. And so it's really to shortchange people if you restrict it uh, to that. But what an encouragement it is to me to know that the Spirit has not only been given to us to change our character, but he's also been given to us to empower us to do the things he has called us to do. That we say, oh, Lord, I can't do that. And he says, yes, I'll give you the Spirit to enable you to do that. And that's exactly what he said one of the purposes for the giving of the Spirit was. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, he says, but you shall receive what? Power. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. We need that power every day and every day. I don't think there's a day that goes by when I do not ask the, uh, the Father to give me the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And I know the difference between when I am uh, ministering in my own strength and abilities and when I am ministering with the energizing of the Holy Spirit. Well, Peter was given a power in his words that went beyond ordinary words. He was given an energy and a boldness that went beyond uh, what he ordinarily had. In fact, remember, it wasn't too many days previous, he didn't have that kind of a boldness. He was scared to death. He denied his Lord. And so it had made a huge difference in his life. Well, Peter was given this power, and he says, yeah, in verse 8, in the middle, rulers of the people and elders of Israel. I want you to notice, first of all, even though these rulers had been guilty of murder, had been guilty of other serious crimes against God, Peter still acknowledged that they were his rulers. And I think that this can instruct us as to what kind of testimony we can bring against the baby killers in Washington, D.C., uh, who are promoting abortion or in other ways are casting off the laws of Christ. We may not be anarchists. Uh, we may not uh, just say, okay, well, they're not going to be my uh, rulers anymore. We must still acknowledge them to be our rulers. We must still honor them. But that does not mean that we have to sit by idly and just excuse their sin and not deal with their sin. And I think we evangelicals have a tendency to go to one extreme or the other. And sometimes it's the same people who go to one extreme or the other. We maybe are so intent on wanting to honor the magistrates that God has put over us that we just are timid and will never bring them to account over their sins. Or we are so intent and frustrated and enraged over the sins and the unconstitutional things that they're doing that we just want to cast them off. And we're saying, you're not going to be my leader anymore. I'm not going to honor or respect you anymore. But really, both are needed. We do need to have respect and honor. And later on in the book, you'll see uh, Paul showing respect and apologizing. He says, oh, I did not know that you were... Um, the high priest, because God says you must not speak against the ruler of the people. So both of those, I think, need to be uh, kept together. Here he is. He's willing to submit as he is able to submit. Obviously, if they command him to do something that counters God's word, he can't, but he still acknowledges them 
to be his rulers. Verse 9, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, that word if implies that even these leaders should have been embarrassed for calling him on the carpet. As Derek Carlson puts it, Peter asks if things have deteriorated to such a degree that people in Israel are now judged for their good deeds and acts of mercy. See what he's doing here? Uh, Peter is not allowing his opponents to frame the debate. They want to frame the debate not as uh, whether a healing has gone on or not. They want to frame the debate on the issue and the question of authority. In fact, they don't even want a debate. They just want to say, it's an authority issue, and you better submit right now. And yet Peter is unwilling to do that. What Peter does is he frames the debate, reframes it, so that they can see how stupid their question really is. The real issue that they are being judged for is that they are doing good deeds. That's the real issue, right? Uh, do I have to ask permission to heal a man? I mean, give me a break. Is that what you're asking me to do? That's, in effect, what Peter is doing. And I think we need to take our cue from P uh, Peter in our debates with the world. When abortionists try to label us as pro-choice, what they're trying to do is reframe the question so it's, the argument is to their advantage. And uh, we need to make clear, this has nothing to do with choice because you're not giving a choice to the baby. You're not giving a choice, probably in many cases, to your husband, to your boyfriend. You're certainly not giving me a choice on this matter. It's not an issue of free pro-choice. Pro you are pro-murder, not pro-choice. Uh, when <clears throat> when um, uh, homosexuals uh, come and they are uh, speaking of uh, homosexual orientation, what we must speak of is a deviation from God's biblical standard, or as one person worded it, homosexual disorientation. Um, when homosexuals ask for equal rights, we need to make it clear, look, you got all the rights that I have. What you're asking for is not equal rights, but special rights that nobody else in America has. In fact, you might even go further and say, and quote from their documents and say, look, your documents say that you want to eventually take away my rights, my right to free speech and to say that your sin, I mean, your, yeah, homosexuality is a sin. And so reframing the question... I think that's uh, helpful for us to do in our debates as well. Then he goes on <clears throat> and he says, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. What a mouthful. Uh, <laughs> Now, if you were present in that room and you were not cringing in your seat or just being a little bit squirmy, it was probably because you're filled with the Holy Spirit and have the same boldness because most people would be sweating nails about this time, right? They'd be thinking, oh, Peter, don't be talking like this. Don't you know who you're talking to? And yet, you know what? As I've read Fox's Book of Martyrs, I have seen the same thing happening down through history. Timid little girls who would have thought that they would be scared to death, standing boldly, testifying to Christ before the people who are going to be throwing them to the lions. I've seen it in China. I've seen it uh, even in the courts here when pro-life people have sometimes been uh, thrown into jail. And they have been surprised at themselves. What that is, is it's the filling of the Holy Spirit giving them a boldness they would not otherwise have had. It's a wonderful gift uh, from God. 
Uh, but Peter knows that there can be no conciliation. This is not an issue that can be compromised on. He can't work out a backroom deal with these guys and say, okay, look, guys, I know this is upsetting to you, so what we're going to do is we're going to preach in other countries, or we're going to preach in, in Galilee, but we won't preach in Judea. Uh, Peter is not willing to do that uh, because God has called him to preach in Jerusalem. And uh, so there is no backroom uh, deal that he can work out. He calls for full freedom of speech, and nothing less is going to be acceptable to him. Nor is he willing to limit who he is going to speak to, because he says, let it be known to you all and to all the, how, all the people of Israel. And so the Sanhedrin is laying down the terms. Peter is laying down the terms. Nor is Peter willing to do his ministry without mentioning the name of Jesus, as so many people today are. In verse 17, the rulers said, Let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. But already Peter has determined he's going to do everything in the name of Jesus. And he didn't soften the punch by politely forgetting about the fact that these guys have murdered Jesus. Now he says that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. The Sanhedrin was hoping to charge Peter. Peter has turned it around and he is charging them of murder. He is charging them of treason against God, of rejecting their Messiah, with resisting the one whom God has honored. This is the kind of Holy Ghost boldness that God can give when people are in emergency situations. And Peter no doubt wondered if he would die just as Jesus did, but we must not allow what other people might think about us or say to us or do to us to keep us from speaking the truth when God has called us to speak the truth. As Derek Carlson said, it is utter foolishness to deny the source of life in an attempt to hold on to our earthly life. He does not fear what men might do to him. The truth burns in his heart and is more important to him than life in this world. Now, it's very easy for us to say that in this safe room here. But put yourself in China. What would you guys do if you were right now transported over to China or over to Iran or to some other place where people are receiving persecution? You need to ask yourselves that question. Which is more important to you? This present the life to come or this present life? Which is more important to you, the praise of God or the praise of men? Safety in Christ or safety in men and their numbers? Which drives you more, the fear of God or the fear of man? If you don't settle those questions in your heart now, you're going to be constantly prone to compromise, constantly prone to give in on principle, and more and more principle as the pressure comes on. You're going to be prone to uh, be silent when you should be speaking or to speak when you should be silent. We've got to settle those questions in our minds because the fear of man, the Scripture says, is a snare. It always snares. It snared me many times in the past, and we've got to deal with that that issue. So if you've got the fear of the Lord every day before you come to that situ situation, it may be fear of what your peers are going to say. You just buckle in and you compromise. You need to say, Lord, fill me with the Holy Spirit because I know I'm going to be tempted to fear and I need your boldness. I need your courage to stand as I ought to stand. And so Peter points to Jesus. 
He points to the confirmation that God gave by raising him from the dead. We're not going to comment on that because there's a, uh, a section later on in Acts that comes up that's uh, really gr- great on that. He says it was by Christ's authority, his power. This man was made whole. There's a couple of other things we've already repeated, so I'm going to skip over some of that. But look at verse 11. In verse 11, he continues his confrontation by appealing to the Scripture. And he's quoting Psalm 118, uh, verse 22. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Now, this is the seventh time since the beginning of Acts that Peter quotes the Scripture and bases all that he says upon the Scripture. Uh, He does not, if you want to see what Holy Ghost preaching is like, man, you don't have to go to any other, all you have to do is read in in, in the book of Acts, and you'll see that it is an exposition of the Word of God and an application of the Word of God. It's not our opinions that we're giving. It's not saying, well, I really think that the Spirit has given me an impression that we ought to do X, Y, Z. No, there's a boldness, there's a confidence. Why? Because this is the inerrant Word of God. It does not make mistakes. And so uh, that's the kind of preaching he gave. And what a verse to confront these rulers with. Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm, and it commands the priestly orders to look to the coming Messiah's Mercies. At the beginning of the psalm, near the beginning, it says, Let Israel now say, His mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, His mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say, His mercy endures forever. Well, this high priestly family is of the household of Aaron. They are being commanded to give glory to this Messiah and the mercies that flow through him. And then the psalm goes on to say, it's better to put your trust in the Lord than to put your trust in princes. Why? Because those princes are going to turn against their very, uh, their very Messiah. And then the psalm goes on to say that the stone, that's the Messiah, the stone which these builders have rejected has been made the chief cornerstone of the new building. Now, these leaders that he's quoting this to would have memorized that psalm. That's a part of their job description. They had to have these psalms down cold. And so when he quotes that verse, it would have landed in their brains like a bombshell in terms of the implications that Peter was making uh, concerning that. It's incredible. According to this psalm, these leaders were supposed to be builders of the nation, but they have cast away the most important part of that building, the chief cornerstone. You have that chief cornerstone gone, the whole building comes crashing down, right? And so, without the cornerstone, this is a veiled warning that if they do not repent and trust in that cornerstone, in the Messiah, the sacrificed Messiah that the psalm goes on to talk about, that stone will crush them, and it will replace them with a new house. Talk about confrontation of persecutors. And by the way, this is the kind of quick, very tightly, concisely made statements that when you're in an emergency situation, only the Spirit can bring to your mind. Uh, We don't have time to ramble on in a long explanation like I'm rambling on this morning. You know, it's got to come out there quick, and the Spirit can bring these Scriptures to mind and just make you say, wow, I said that. Uh, And that's the way it came from Peter. It was a bombshell. Now, there's one more thing that Peter wants to make clear in verse 12, that there is no room for pluralism. And this is a theme that you find all the way through the book of Acts. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
As one commentator said, these builders had made a grave mistake, for they had tried to destroy the only source of salvation there is. Now, this means that being religious is not enough to get you into heaven. You couldn't find a more religious group of people than these priests and Pharisees and Sadducees, and yet they were not saved because they had rejected their Messiah. Now, even here, Peter holds out hope for them that if there is repentance, there can be forgiveness uh, through, uh, through uh, the Lord Jesus. And there will be some of these priests in the next chapters who are so cut to the heart by the words that Peter speaks that they do repent and they do believe. Um, it, to me, this is just incredible. God has a harvest right in this trial itself. Some of these priests hear these words. You never know the incredible impact that boldly preached word can have in the lives of people. But in contrast, do not expect a whole lot of exciting things to happen if we only have the courage to have a wimpy, pluralistic, religious pluralism. And you see this pluralism everywhere. The polls show that uh, evangelicalism uh, is more and more people treating Christianity as an option among many. And sure, they think in private that it's for everybody, but the way they talk in public, well, this is good for me, this is, that's good for you type of a thing. Uh, evangelicals are now being coached on how to pray before Congress and how to pray at the White House. Don't use the name of Jesus because that will offend Muslims. Uh, that will offend Jews. Just use a generic prayer. Let me tell you something. God does not hear generic prayers. He only hears prayers that are made in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, I don't know how many sermons ago it was, but we looked at numerous scriptures that show that there is nothing we can do that is of any significance unless it is through Christ. He alone is the mediator. Everything flows from him, every good gift that comes from above. And if you're trying to pray apart from the name of Jesus, it's not going to get, going to get past uh, the ceiling. <clears throat> Uh, the praise that God gives to the church of Philadelphia, I think, says it all. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. In one mayor's uh, prayer breakfast that I was invited to here in Omaha, I was disheartened to see the way evangelical leaders we're leaving out the name of Jesus. No reference to the name of Jesus. And in order to not offend, I didn't even know that there was going to be non-evangelicals there, in order to not offend a Jewish rabbi who was also praying there, they uh, uh, called him brother. Upset. And was asking God's forgiveness for the cowardliness of the church to name the name of Christ and uh, praying a post-millennial prayer that Christ would have dominion and would take every square inch of planet Earth, that there would be no room for any other religion. Well, what evangelicals are good at doing today is saying right things without denying their opposites. They want to say, we value marriage without saying we abhor homosexuality. They want to say, we value life from conception without saying we are opposed to abortion in any circumstances, including rape and incest, including uh, any kind of, um, uh, what's it called, preventing uh, fertilization, uh, birth control that casts off a fertilized egg. Say, oh, don't talk like that. You're going to offend even evangelicals if you start talking like that. 
but people are not willing to say what they don't believe. Christians were all thrilled when the mayor's office came out with a carefully crafted document on strengthening marriage. Now, this was, by the way, a pastor's um, coalition of people that was working with the mayor. And uh, people were saying, wow, this is so cool. And granted, there was some good things that were said in that document because they were saying there's a crisis here. Marriages and families falling apart. But I was really troubled, not so much by what it said, but by what was being left out and by what it was unwilling to address the issues that really needed to be addressed if we're going to save marriages. And so I uh, asked one of these evangelicals who was involved in the crafting of this document, I says, how come it's so ambiguous and how come it's not addressing this and the other thing? And he said, well, out of deference to the mayor, we've been trying very hard to avoid anything that would offend homosexual, uh, homose homosexuals. And I thought, how sad. And so I reread the thing and I said, well, sure enough, it's a good sounding document, but if you believed in homosexual marriage, you wouldn't be offended by this thing. It was a say nothing document. It was a worthless document. Most people missed it that read that and were signing on to this document. Uh, you'll be happy to know that Pastor Glenn uh, caught it immediately, wrote a scathing letter to the people who are responsible for crafting this, typical of Glenn. And I, I confronted them as well. But uh, people are afraid of this kind of antithesis. Years ago, Francis Schaeffer was warning the evangelical church that they were going to lose the battle unless they started maintaining antithesis. Now, you're probably tired of me preaching on this, but you know why I keep bringing up antithesis? is because some of you are fearful. You're fearful of antithesis with your peers, your Christian peers. We've got to have antithesis. Let me define it. Antithesis is making a clear distinction between A and non-A, between truth and error. He pointed out that if you are, not fully defend, you are not fully defending the truth, if you only state the truth, you must also say what is not the truth, deny the opposite. Let me quote from uh, uh, Francis Schaeffer. At one point he said, To the extent that anyone gives up the mentality of antithesis, he has moved over to the other side, even if he still tries to defend orthodoxy or evangelicalism. Well, let me repeat that, because I think that is a, that's just a, an incredible statement. Francis Schaeffer said, To the extent that anyone gives up the mentality of antithesis, he has moved over to the other side even if he still tries to defend orthodoxy or evangelicalism. And that is where we are at today. The evangelical church, for the most part, has joined the other side of relativism, not because they're not willing to affirm the truth, they are, but they're totally unwilling to say, not only is this A, but we're denying non-A. We're, we're, we're not willing to say that A cannot be both A and non-A at the same time, which is what liberals are constantly trying to say. If we are to have a reformation in our own day, we desperately need leaders with the boldness of Peter. This is why I love the Coalition on Revival. I think they're doing a great work. The documents that they are pulling together with the 70-plus uh, leaders I think are some incredible documents calling the church back to repentance, not just in uh, areas of theology, but in areas of, of practice, in business, in medicine, in, in education, in so many different uh, areas. 
and uh, they are putting together thousands of affirmations and denials. And I love the denials because those denials keep liberals from being able to sign those documents. You'd be surprised the documents liberals are willing to sign. You say, you don't believe that, but they're willing to affirm. But the moment you put denials in, there's no wiggle room. They can't do it. Uh, those denials keep cowardly evangelicals from pretending to be reformers. But above all, it makes it very clear what we believe and what we do not believe. We affirm this and we deny the opposite. And I think such clear thinking is desperately needed. So be, be in prayer for the coalition and revival. Be in prayer that these documents would have a wide hearing. And they've already been formulated and uh, gone through for quite a number of years here in the States and in South America. They're going to other countries as well. But if the church could lay hold of these documents, I think it could make a huge difference. Pray that God would raise up John Calvin's, Martin Luther's, John Knox's with a boldness, a Holy Spirit-given boldness to confront idols and to confront the, the cowardly compromisers that are in the church as well as in other forms of government. Nothing less than this will save the church from utter irrelevance and defeat. May we be a church that is filled with the Spirit, that's bold in holding to antithesis, and is willing to lovingly, yes, lovingly, confront the confronters on their own turf. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. What a blessing it is to have the word, to give us antithesis, to shine the light on our way so that we're not stumbling along. Father, forgive the church of Jesus Christ for having trying to accommodate and uh, try, trying to accommodate everyone. They have made everything gray. Father, help us to see in terms of black and white, right and wrong. And uh, Father, I pray that this would bleed over into society and bring reformation to our whole culture. Father, we desperately need the work of reformation today, and I pray that you would stir up the hearts of leaders all over our nation, people who would have the boldness of John Calvin, people with the boldness of, uh, of Knox to tear down idols and to not compromise in any way. Father, we desire that your name would be lifted up. And so we come to you and we desire the glory of Christ, his kingdom to be expanded. And so we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our only Savior. Amen. Let's respond to God's word by singing a, a hymn that... Uh, was written in the time of the Reformation. And it's a hymn that I think as you read the stanzas, you're going to see, wow. Even though this world is filled with devils, all of these other things that come against us, we can still stand bold because of what Christ has purchased for us, filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's stand as we sing.